Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians. Not Galatians. Colossians. Chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 24. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24, and we're going to read through verse 29. Hear the word of God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's bow once again in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Uh, We thank you for your word. It is uh, given to us as a means of grace. That means that it is effective. It is powerful. You accomplish things by it. You accomplish things in our hearts. And Lord, as we look together at the verses that are before us, We ask that you would do exactly that. Each one of us is unique and different. Each one of us has a different set of circumstances, issues, and problems. But you, O God, are able to make your word powerful in our lives, unique as they may be yet you work wonderfully. And so, O Lord, we ask that you would do that this day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Maybe you can recall something that happened this week over the course, maybe, even of the last few days. Uh, Something that was uh, particularly maybe uh, challenging and troubling. Troubling in the sense that uh, you were faced with something that you couldn't, A, figure out, 
B, you were faced with something that seemed greater than your ability to handle or to do anything about. And maybe there was a sense along with that of helplessness. I've been in many of your presences and visited with you over a variety of circumstances. And I know that that is indeed the case for you, as it is for me. As I face times of sense where I have a great sense, an overwhelming sense of insufficiency and a lack of wisdom and a lack of power. And each of us have unique circumstances in that respect. And so, what I would like for us to do is reflect a little bit on what do we do when we feel like our own inner house is in ruin? What do we do when we feel as though the furniture is all in disarray and the pictures on the wall are all tilted in a horrible way? And there's dust and there's dirt everywhere. What do we do when our own inner house is not so great? And what I'd like to do is put forward to you a a single proposition. And that is that for the one who is in Christ, so I ask you this morning, to ask yourself that question. Am I in Christ? Start there. What that means is that at some point in your life, you have come to the end of yourself, and you know that there's no righteousness that you can produce that would bring you into the glory that belongs to God, that you have no business being in God's presence the way you are. And then what you've done is you confessed your sins to God and you said, I receive the free gift of salvation that has come to me through Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. And he rose from the dead to conquer the death and the hell that would lie before me if it were not for him. That's the first thing. Is that something you have done? And having done it once, is it something that you do every single day? You get up in the morning and you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And Lord, I need you. I can't live this day without you and without your help. That's what it is to live the Christian life. Okay, now, getting to a point of the sermon, and that is this. The Christian is one who is in Christ in the sense that I just mentioned, and being in Christ learns to live outside of yourself. A Christian is one who learns to live outside of themselves. What I want to do is show you in the words that we just read how Paul did that. And so what we want to do is begin with verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. 
I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. And so right off the bat, what do you see there? You see suffering. You see suffering. He says, I rejoice in my suffering. Well, for the Apostle Paul, he was sitting in prison in Rome, and he wrote this in circumstances that were not of his choosing, but were, of course, God's choosing for him, and he was suffering. And so what I'd like to suggest is that being in a place of weakness and suffering is the normal, is the normal state for someone who is a Christian. And let me call your attention to another passage. If you would like to, you can turn there with me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, and you would think that the Apostle Paul, being the great apostle that he is, would just be operating from a, a sense of full supply, having wisdom that comes directly from God, and having power and strength, and that that would be his perception of his ministry. But what does he say about his ministry in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7? We have this treasure, that is Christ, or the gospel, in jars of clay. Jars of clay. That is, clay jars are not outwardly impressive. And then he goes on to describe, he says in verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says, we always carry in the body the death of Jesus, And then in verse 11, he says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. You may have noticed I skipped over that phrase earlier. I want to get to that in a minute. But the first thing I want us to notice is that the life of weakness, the, the life of inadequacy, the life of suffering, to use Paul's word, is the norm and is to be seen in a certain light. In Paul's case, the suffering he endured was persecution for the sake of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But persecution for the gospel is one form of suffering, and certainly there are a number of people throughout church history who are especially persecuted for the sake of the message of the gospel. Whole communities are persecuted, as we've learned, and as we have been praying through the year for the persecuted church in India, for example. But persecution is not the only form of suffering. Whatever it is that cripples you, whatever it is, whether it's an addiction, whether it's depression, whether it's something that has seemingly, you have struggled with for some time. So for some, it's financial pressure, never knowing how the bills are going to be paid. Various forms of 
trial and suffering come upon us all. And you need to get concrete about it so that the next time your tire blows out and you're by the side of the road and you're pulling out your jack, which you forgot where it was, and, and, and you, need, you need to say, okay, well, Lord, uh, this is part of my, of my sufferings today. We need to be concrete about it. Don't think about it in terms of just generalities or someone else. Think about it, what you specifically dealt with yesterday or the day before that is a constant possibly in your life. This suffering, Paul says, is something that he experienced and it is something that all believers experience. Suffering is the normal. It is the beginning and it is this side of glory normal for the Christian life, inadequacy. All right, the second thing I want us to note is that not only is inadequacy, suffering, pain, difficulty normal in the Christian life, I want us to see as well that Paul saw it in a certain light. He saw his sufferings as an opportunity for God's power to be at work in him for the sake of others. And notice that. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Wouldn't you suffer? Um, I, I, when, I, when I get sick, I'm a baby. You know, it's all about me. And I want everybody else to be all about me. What is Paul saying here? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That is, the Christians in Colossae. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And so the second thing I want us to see is that suffering is a part of our calling to serve the body of Christ. Oh, I didn't have that in mind when I became a Christian. Suffering is a way that you serve the body of Christ. It's the way you serve your husband. It's the way you serve your wife. It's the way you serve your children. And Paul says here, he speaks of filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That phrase might mystify you. Why does he speak about filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Immediately we think of the uh, suffering of Christ and his atoning work on the cross as being substitutionary in nature and therefore, because of the fullness of his deity, there is no lack in his suffering in his humanity. His humanity is infinitely worthy. That is... It has an, a power that can be applied as an infinite source of righteousness and life to all who trust in him. There is no lack. There is no lack in the sufferings of Christ in that sense. But Paul here is speaking about a deficiency or a lack in the sufferings of Christ in another sense. 
does not imply any lack in the atoning efficacy of the death of Christ. What he is saying is, take Christ as a whole. Think of Christ. How does he think of himself? His church is his body. And Paul says in Ephesians that it is the fullness of him that fills all things. So the church is the fullness of him. So when Christ thinks of himself, he doesn't think of himself apart from you. That's an amazing thing. So what Paul is saying is that in the body of Christ and in the fullness of Christ, which includes everyone who belongs to him, everyone who is in him, in the fullness of Christ, there is ordained an allotment of struggle and agony. That there is ordained for each one who follows Christ that he would take up his cross and follow him. And that struggle and agony is partly the struggle against our own sin. The agony of the continually, uh, our our continual uh, sense of of, our inability to break off from our sins. And so we come to God repeatedly, don't we? Over and over and over again. Lord, forgive me. I've done it again. And out of the infinite greatness of his sacrifice on the cross, out of the infinite greatness of his love, He has no difficulty with that, though you would if someone did that with you. He has no difficulty with it. And so there is ordained for each one who is a Christian a certain allotment of struggle, an allotment of sorrow, an allotment of pain. And each of us could tell our own story. Each of us, you know, I couldn't, I, I, I can bear the burden that has been laid on my shoulders with the help of God. I couldn't bear the burdens of the shoulder, on the shoulders of all of you here this morning. But there is one who can. There is one who can, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul saw that his suffering was a part, a necessary part of his ministry. That sense of weakness was ordained that he would have a part in filling up that which was lacking in the affliction of Christ. Not in Christ, in his atoning work, but in Christ's body, that each member of the body has been given a a portion, a portion of a cross to bear. And Paul says that it is for the church, for the sake of his body, that is his church. And then he glories in his ministry. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And in Paul's particular case, what he was called by God to be and to do is, he says in the very next Phrase, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to his saints. So what is the task of everyone who is called to ministry? The task of everyone that is called to ministry is to make the word of God 
fully known. That is fully in the sense, not partially, but fully. That is the whole counsel of God from every book of the Bible, every chapter of the Bible, and every doctrine of the Bible, whether we particularly like it, whether it is pleasant for us, or whether it is not. But Paul says his task as a minister of the gospel, the stewardship that was given to him, is to make the mystery of Christ fully known, to make the word of God fully known. And it is a mystery that was hidden for ages, he says, in generations. But it is now revealed to his saints. And it is now, that now that he spoke of, then, all, the, all those years ago, that now is still now. And God is still revealing that mystery right now to you. So never think of this as a lesson in ancient history. Never think of this as a lesson of something that meant something for people long ago and far away. It is something for you and for me even in the present moment that I want the Word of God to be fully known and revealed to me. It is revealed to his saints. And he says to them, God chose to make known. So there is a choosing here. If you've come to know something of Christ, if you've come to know the gospel, and you've come to know it in such a way that it is not something impersonal or distant, but that it is Christ is Yours, and you are Christ. If you have come to know Christ in that way, that is a result of God's choice. That's what Paul says here. To them, God chose to make known. Light. What is the gospel? The gospel is light. The gospel is that which shines. And just as God created light in the beginning when he made the heavens and the earth, when he announces the gospel of Jesus Christ and you hear it and you believe it, it's as though God, if you ever see, you know, like in the movie sets, you know, they have those big power lights, as though somebody flips a switch and that light just shines and you know it and you see and you see Christ and you see your sin and you see God's glory and you see his purpose for you in a way that you've never, ever seen it before. Light and life come through the gospel. And God chooses to make this known to those whom he wills. And he says, generally speaking, this is known. He says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles. And this brings me to my third point, and that is this. Not only is suffering a part of every Christian's life, and not only is that suffering a part of your service in the body of Christ, but the way that it is a part of your service in the body of Christ is now made clear. Its purpose is, thirdly, to manifest the life and the fullness that is in Christ working in you as you suffer. Verses 26 through 28. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, 
but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, he says, and I struggle with all his energy. The word there is dynamite. With all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He says, I struggle, but his energy is powerfully at work in me as I do it. And so what I want us to see, first of all, is that this mystery that um, is something that enables you to live a life in which your suffering is turned in unto the, to others for their salvation, that this is something that God has ordained from all eternity. He says, he says uh, that this was hidden for ages and generations, but it is now revealed. It's ancient. It originates in the ancient councils of God. But that this power that is at work in Paul, this power that is at work in, him, in you, even in your sufferings, it is in you, Christ in you. He's not talking here about Christ as he is on his throne in heaven, but he's speaking here of Christ in you. And so the, what has occurred to Christ it's not, it is objective. It's outside of us. But Paul is saying that that which is outside of us is the source of the power and the energy that I need to do the task that God has called you to do. So what I want you to see then is that there is a source of power that is outside of you, but that he pours into you. And your task is not to do things in your own power, in your own strength, but to take that which he has already done and receive it. And so Christ's power is at work in you. In our suffering, in our sense of um, inability, we draw from Christ. It is Christ who is in us by his power, by the Holy Spirit. And that's why. Since Paul is convinced that the gospel is a gospel of glory that is all about Jesus Christ, you can see the emphasis here, verse 28, him we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus Christ. We do not deviate from that subject. It is Jesus Christ who provides us the righteousness that justifies. It is Jesus Christ who sanctifies us and makes us holy in God's sight. It is Jesus Christ who will glorify us, and it is Jesus Christ in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, as he'll say in verse 3 of the next chapter. And so everything that you need has been accomplished by Christ. Do you need righteousness to be able to appear before a holy God? He's fulfilled all righteousness. He gives it as a gift 
to all who trust in him. Are you guilty? Are you a sinner? Do you need that righteousness? Most certainly you do. Most certainly I do. But not only is that, but he is the source of life and power for your growth and for your sanctification. So that his life is, as a sense, poured from heaven into you. There's a man who wrote a book on the doctrine of sanctification that I really like. His name is Walter Marshall. And um, I want to just share with you a quote. He says this, As our natural corruption was produced originally in the first Adam and propagated from him to us, so our new nature and holiness is first produced in Christ and derived from him to us. We are not to work together with Christ in making or producing a holy frame, but only to take it to ourselves and to use it in our holy practice as made already for our hands in receiving that holy frame of the Spirit that was originally accomplished in him. So what I want us to see then is that everything that you need in your life, in your difficulties, in your sufferings, is in Christ. And it is there for you to receive and to take his life. So what, what do I mean? So as we come to the Lord's table in a moment, one of the things that we can pray is, Lord, as these emblems signify your death, the wine, your blood, the bread, your broken body, and as that wine and bread goes from those plates to me, so may it be that your Holy Spirit would cause the life of Christ to come from heaven and fill me with power that I don't have. Give me that which I can't produce. You know, I think we probably all have this sort of thing in our mind that we think, well, a state of mind or a state of being that is proper for a Christian, for a devout Christian, for a holy Christian. And we always think, well, that state of mind and that state of being, well, I, I can think of certain people that might be able to attain that, but that's not for, for me. That's not how I would describe myself. I could see the pastor maybe being that way. But that holy state, that holy frame of mind, that life of being in fellowship with God in Christ, that life exists in Christ and is for you to receive. And that's what Paul is saying here. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me, with an energy, with a power. That energy and that power, where does it come from? It comes from the living, glorified Christ. 
I read this morning um, uh, a devotional by Charles Spurgeon. And um, as I was reading that, um, I thought it might be appropriate for us as we consider this subject, uh, if, I, if I shared it, part of it with you. But before I do, just to note this, that notice that the Apostle Paul calls the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He orients it toward the future, the hope of glory, the glory that lies ahead. Christ in you, the power of God at work in you, in your sufferings, but it produces as well a future hope. And Spurgeon says this, Think of how his grace has been sufficient for you in all your troubles, how his blood has been a pardon to you in all your sins, how his rod and his staff have comforted you. And when you have thus looked back upon the love of the Lord, then let faith survey his love in the future. For remember that Christ's covenant and blood have something more in them than the past. He who has loved you and pardoned you will never cease to love and pardon you. He is the Alpha. He is, shall be the Omega also. He is first, and he will be last. And so, as you think of the life that lies ahead for you, and the tasks and the difficulties that you face, draw from a source that is outside of you, Draw from an energy that you don't have and that you can't work up and that you can't produce, but Christ has it. Receive it from him and do it even as we partake of the Lord's table this morning. Receive from him all that he has, his righteousness, his power, his spirit. and Receive from him that grace that you know you can't produce that person you want to be, that you know you can't. Christ has accomplished it all. Receive from him the grace that he has for you. And remember that his love never stops. It never stops. Uh, though I walk, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Right? Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, how we need you. How we ask, O oh Lord, that even that which, that fullness that dwells in Christ, that you might be pleased to cause that fullness to spill out and overflow even into our own hearts. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table, um, let's sing together hymn number 341, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. We'll sing the first four stanzas. The first four stanzas, and then we'll have the Lord's Supper.
we have the privilege of coming to this table where Christ is present with us as the host. He is the one who uh, has called us to observe this. Uh, We don't do it because uh, we think it's a nice thing to do. We do it because Christ commanded us to do this. That is, we gather around a table and we partake of these elements, the bread and the fruit of the vine. And the bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken and the fruit of the vine symbolizes the blood of Christ that is shed. The Apostle Paul gives the words of institution when he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night that he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Uh, We studied this passage this past Wednesday night. It's a reminder to us, isn't it, that as we gather before this table, this isn't a ritual, this isn't something that we just do without thinking. Paul says, he clearly lays it out, when you're doing this, you're doing this, and when you're doing this, you're doing this. Now examine yourself, am I in Christ? Am I one who participates in that life that belongs to Jesus Christ? Has he become one with me and I with him? That's the, those are the kinds of questions we need to be asking. And so as we take and receive the element, what are we doing? We're taking and receiving Christ. And that's something that is expressed in our creedal statements. For example, in the Belgic Confession, it says, for the, support of our, uh, as, uh, as, uh, for the support of our bodily and earthly life, God has given us earthly bread. For the support of our spiritual and heavenly life, he has given us a living bread, namely Jesus Christ. And the spiritual life of believers is strengthened when they eat him. Now, we don't eat Christ, but there's a sense when we receive these elements in faith that we receive Christ. He is present in them. And so we think that there, this is a means of grace. Just as we receive the word, So in the sacrament, we receive Christ when we receive the bread and the wine. When we do it in faith and trust, that's what it means. That's what it means to be nourished and strengthened. And so this Lord's Supper represents to us the spiritual and heavenly bread by means of a visible bread, a symbol of his body, and wine, a symbol of his blood.
With that in mind, I want to invite all who are in Christ. Consider yourself to be in Christ, to have repented of your sins. If you are one who has repented of your sins, you've come to grip with heaven and hell. And knowing that Christ has died on the cross to free you from your sins and to give you life, you trusted in him alone. If you are one who has done that, and you have confessed your faith, and you have become a member of the visible body of Christ, and you identify in Christ, if that is the case, we want you to join us. It doesn't matter if you're a member here at this particular church, but if you're a member of a church that preaches the gospel, we invite you to come. But if you have not yet confessed Christ, if you have not yet joined yourself to the body of Christ, if you're not a member of the body of Christ, I urge you to let the elements go by until the Lord in his goodness brings you to that place, and I pray it is soon, where you also will receive and be acknowledged to have received the Lord Jesus Christ in the body of Christ. So these elements are given to us for our spiritual nourishment. Let us eat together uh, and feed upon him. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have provided so richly for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come with empty hands and we are empty vessels. Uh, We are deeply in need. Would you, O Lord, take these elements that are common and make them set aside for a holy purpose, that as we receive them, that we might do so mindful and in faith, trusting that you, by your Holy Spirit, work using this means of grace even in our own hearts. Would you do that, we ask, O God? Would you strengthen us? Would you feed us? Would you help us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me.
just remembering that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of your sins. In the same way, also, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Uh, if I, see if I get this right. I think that the grape juice is on the outer rim, and the wine is the inner rim. There. I did it. <laughs> Drink this remembering that Christ's blood was shed for the remission of your sins.
Every time we observe the Lord's Supper together, we receive an offering. And the deacons are going to come forward in just a moment and receive that offering. Uh, let us pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, we do give praise and thanks to you once again for that eternal love settled in the councils of the Godhead before the world was created and accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again in glory. And Lord, we pray that we might draw, that we might be those who in all of our helplessness, in all of our need, that we know, that we know where there is life, where there is joy, and that it is found in Christ, and it is for, our, for us to receive that which is freely given. And Lord, we do pray that in humility we would walk in dependence upon you, in uh, depending upon you every day, looking to you for that life which we cannot possibly produce, but that you can do in us. So, Lord, we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The deacons will come forward. We'll receive the deacons' offering at this time. Please stand and let us sing together the final stanza of hymn number 341, Alas and Did My Savior Bleed.
benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.